Hello and welcome to the Sports Law Podcast, where we speak about the intersection of sports, media, and tech. Today, we're going to take the investor's view, and we're going to speak to an impressive investor from the world of uh, sports and technology who joins us from Lisbon. Uh, but before we do that, if you do like what you hear, please remember to follow us and give us a like and a subscription wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social at Sportsloft HQ. And make sure that you go to our website, sportsloft.co, to sign up for our newsletter where you'll get information about podcasts and other great news and information coming out of the world of sports, media, and tech. Well, today, to take a little bit of a dive into what the world of investing is like uh, in sports, media, and entertainment with a focus on technology, we've got Antonio Cacorino, the founder and CEO at Apex Capital. And we'll be discussing a number of things, such as what Apex looks for, Antonio's view of the market, and uh, how they support their companies. The firm itself seeks to co-invest with athletes in the sports, media, and entertainment space, and has a portfolio of very impressive companies such as Spock, Full Venue, and a number of others. But before we get into that detail, I'd like to take the moment to welcome Antonio to the Sports Love Podcast. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, Annie. Um, it's it's truly an honor to be part of this this podcast. And you know, as as you said, who would have thought you know I, w- I wouldn't be here one day? But yeah, I'm uh, I'm definitely excited to to be here to speak and to not only tell you a bit about Apex, but also discuss the sports, uh, the sports tech environment. So, so just excited. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks for being here uh, to give the listeners some context. In the, in the briefing notes, I told Antonio that when I'd be throwing it to him, he should say something silly, like it's an honor of a lifetime to be here. So uh, good to see that you're taking that to heart. But listen, Antonio, before we get into it um, and stepping stepping all over my my brief introduction, please tell us a little bit about Apex Capital, how it was founded, which is a fascinating actual founding story in and of itself, uh, and what you guys look to do and what you do day to day with Apex. Directly and bluntly, we are a sports media entertainment investment manager, but I guess sort of our value proposition is very, very unique from what's out there. Uh, It's it's pretty much the belief that athletes, if they invest actively in, in the ecosystem that they're part of, they can be the most strategic investors, right? So we, what we set out to do two years ago was prove exactly that, that athletes were willing to dedicate time, specifically when they're in the peak of their careers, which is the majority of the athletes we work with. Uh, and by doing that, really positioning themselves in Apex, of course, in the middle of that as a very strategic investor and contribute to the future of sports. Um, so, so that's what we are. I mean, very generally, we, f- of course, for focus predominantly in venture and, and in sports tech, which is also a sector which is in the peak. Uh, and, you know, timings also helped. We've never seen this athlete entrepreneurial movement as, as hot as it is today because people are recognizing the athlete's value really beyond just their capital and their commercial value, but really their network and their understanding of the industry. And that's sort of why we believe we're quite unique. Um, and why we've been very successful at not only finding and executing the right of the best deals in the ecosystem, but also working with uh, an amazing group of athletes and, and building this very strong community, which just keeps on growing from in terms of geographies, different sports, genders, and, um, and, and majorities. We know we work with these very young athletes and we work with athletes which are in, in a retiring phase. So so it just really proves our thesis, and you know, and uh, we're very happy to to be right in in our assumptions. Hmm. And how how are you? Um, how did you decide 
about doing this because what's interesting about this is that um, you guys are based and founded out of uh, out of Lisbon, Portugal. Um, the initial athletes on board are uh, large from the world of motorsports, um, a very traditionally European stronghold. Um, the concept of athlete investing has started to burgeon in the U.S. as well with uh, a number of different funds set up either around individual athletes as it then was but now we're seeing more and more sort of the model that you guys have around investing uh or or funds being created by multiple athletes together and kind of taking it forward how did you guys come up with the idea and how did you um pitch it to get the right uh, the right partners on board to uh, to start it off yeah that's a good question and a good point with the us but our our story sort of begins in in covid uh 2020 and i guess a lot of ideas uh, were generated there, but I ended up doing my quarantine with uh, uh, Antonio Felix Acosta, first formerly uh, 2020 world champion, uh, one of uh, my best friends, and Pedro, his brother and also co-founder of Apex. And basically, we have a lot of time. And um, one thing that we, we spoke a lot about was this, you know, U.S. movement of, of athletes, right? And getting them in, in, into venture and getting them um, very excited about, you know, startup investing and all that. And we, we looked at Europe and we saw that that didn't really happen, right? So so we realized that there was a good already service on a wealth management perspective out of Europe, but very little in terms of getting athletes engaging. And, and uh, so that was sort of the initial thought. And we decided to have a few calls with a few athletes and, and ask them directly, you know, would you be interested in looking at the startup world and what gets you motivated there? And definitely beyond the upside on a financial perspective, it was really a purpose so they athletes want to be recognized as valuable investors as well and uh, that made us think you know let's focus in sports because that's what they understand that's where they can add real value that's where the commercial value is also more appreciated so that's what we need to do and then i guess a third element to to the foundation of apex and uh, it's also i guess a mission and a purpose every human being in, in well the majority of the average human being in covid was a bit unaware of what was happening, but everyone just knew that it was a question of time until things got back to normal. So is it one month? Is it one year? Is it two? We don't know, but we know that eventually I'll go back to, to my job and I'll continue. Athletes, of course, had that in their mind, but they had they took it to another level. They thought, this might be me in five years when I retire. You know, just sitting at home without a purpose, right? There's a part of, there's a number of athletes which don't want to, keep you know active in the football world the moral sports world because they've just been there for too long they're a bit tired hmm. but in many cases that's the only industry where they're still taken seriously right because um so uh we give an option to athletes if they have if they want to have a purpose in their life once they retire and you know their ma their wealth management is done so they can sort of live off the majority of their capital, you know, generating income, mm -hmm. but then they can put in a smaller percentage and start becoming angel investors and adding value and having that be the purpose of their life. Mm -hmm. So that, that's also sort of part of, of why we speak at Apex. So before we get to the very impressive roster of athletes that you work with, what is the underlying assumption under that thesis of what makes an athlete a good investor? We we like to say so. There's four four verticals to to an athlete. There is of course the fact that they have good levels of cash. That's an obvious one, right? And it's cash, it's liquidity. And you know when you do venture and investing, it's not about massive amounts. It's about having liquidity. 
Mm-hmm. Th- this they do, especially if they're in the peak of their career, which means they're also at a time where they're making a lot. I know they're not taking out of savings, mm-hmm. but they're actually investing from what they're currently making. That's important for any uh, angel investor. Two, they have a very strong commercial value. And this is something you know, the world knows. So uh, in consumer businesses, th- that can also be leveraged, not in terms of doing equity for commercial, because that's commercial deal, you know, but, you know, just leveraging their image to to add the strategical value to what they do and where they put their money in. Third, which is, I guess, that's when we start as Apex differentiating them is making them understand the power of the network that they have in sports, right? There is no sponsor, right, solar, sports property owner, team, player, coach that they can't, they don't know or that they can't reach. So that's massive when you're investing in early stage mm-hmm. uh, uh, sports tech because uh, that's, you know, sometimes founders have great technological uh, and technical capacity. They have good operational, but what they lack normally is uh, a network within sports, right? And this is what athletes and, and we as Apex have. And then the fourth one is industry insights, you know, they understand the sports inside out from a, a political standpoint to uh, a historical uh, and macro standpoint. You know, they've been, they were broad. There were many of them were born into sports and they've been part of sports for 20, 30, 40 years. So who better than them to understand exactly what are the problems in the sports industry? And beyond that, what are the problems that are actually uh, needed to be solved? Because sometimes a founder might tell you there's a problem and uh, an athlete would tell you, yes, this problem exists, but I can tell you right now it's not a priority for sports. So right now that solution is not actually a business. Hmm. So... These are the types of validation that even for Apex, uh, you know, they can help us with our due diligence. So, you know, these four uh, sort of, you know, combined make them very strategical investors. And tell us about some of the athletes that you are working with that you can tell us about, because obviously you mentioned Antonio Felix da Costa, the uh, 2020 Formula E world champion. Um, there's some other from the same world, but then it's diversified outside of the world of motorsports as well. So tell us who you work with. Yeah. So another co-founder is Mitch Evans who's a, a very good friend and sort of the, the, one of the first athletes that we called and said, listen, do you think this makes sense? And he straight away said, yes, I wanted to be part of. Uh, you know, through through them, we, we we managed to penetrate very well, of course, the motorsports world. So uh, we work with, uh, you know, the majority of the F1 grid. We work with, uh, you know, uh, IndyCar uh, racers. There's 30 plus uh, drivers within motorsports globally that we work with. Some have already been announced as uh, I have done deals with us, guys like Carlos Sainz, guys like Lando, uh, guys like Alwan, uh, you know, informally most of the drivers, you know, Tom Blomqvist and Brendan Hartley are also investors in Apex directly. Some clients also became shareholders. So, I mean, with motorsports, it's really where, you know, we started and uh, where we reached that tier one level mm-hmm. very early. Um, and then, of course, we're European, we're Portuguese, that made us naturally uh, penetrate well the, the football world. So we work with, you know, uh, I would say 30 plus as well of the best uh, soccer stars out there that uh, some have doing, been doing venture for many years. Some start their venture journey with us and really cross so football, uh, so Portuguese, English, German, Italian, Spanish. I mean, a very, very uh, wide number, but more importantly, they need to have either experience or motivation to be part. We're not, we don't want to convince athletes to work with us. So we don't say, you know, we don't convince them to get into venture. We 
we get we we naturally know that that is something they want to do and we are here to make them you know help them do this in a community with other athletes right and not be just around one guy uh you know then surfing tennis golf boxing uh a lot of u.s athletes as well again as you mentioned uh, and very correctly in the u.s this athlete movement has been is definitely more mature so we work with uh especially the big big uh big athletes we work on sort of co-investment uh partnerships mm-hmm. you know we just announced a month ago uh, a, a deal with 35 Avengers, of course kevin durant he doesn't directly invest as uh, apex community but we co-invest together you know, in the u.s they tend to have strong structures around them that they already do mm-hmm. but now started to get to get in to penetrate properly the u.s athlete market and also bring uh some some younger guys directly into into the the apex community because our ambition is really to be the go-to athlete investing community uh, globally so not necessarily be associated to europe to one sport or to one gender but really have this community and uh, uh feeling around them have them sort of help each other and leverage each, each other's uh expertises for a sort of community uh purpose and um, talk to us a little bit about how you structure the investments with these athletes. Um, have you raised a single fund from which you deploy? Do you go on a case-by-case basis in order to uh, unlock capital and go to each of them? Um, describe that a little bit uh, before we kind of get into the specifics. Yeah, so we began very lightly on a deal-by-deal structure. That's what made sense. That's what allowed athletes to gain confidence in, in, you know, in what's we are doing and what they are doing and we were really restricted to athlete capital so we said guys let's find the best deal structure in the right way and then get athletes to really invest either directly or a group of athletes together in spv and have them invest so we didn't have a fund and we still to this day don't have mm-hmm. um but that's of course naturally where we we are transiting into we we knew that our model was good to start but had its limitations you know, athletes are very busy and the right deals come and go very quickly. So if a deal, you know, rocks up our table in April and you have, you know, three, four F1 races back to back and you have, you know, the Champions League going on, these two sports already is hard to, to, to sit down and, and have athletes commit or, or at least understand what are, what is the deal. So we, we knew we would naturally move into a fund structure and this is exactly where we are now. Uh, but also we, we we started to have a lot of non-athlete capital interested in what we're doing. And that's moving into a fund structure. That's also how we accommodate this non-athlete capital to really scale into, you know, bigger a bigger operation uh, in terms of our investing capabilities mm. and that brings about a really interesting question for me which is that obviously non-athlete capital will tend to be much smarter well smarter is the wrong wrong word but much more um, expert in analyzing some of these deals and understanding the potential value um, even within the athletes that you work with I'm sure there's um, vast uh, vast differences in terms of the uh, level of understanding, the you know uh, difference uh, difference of strength between each one of them. How have you managed to 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 balance that, and how much it how much has gone into explaining the value of a certain investment to an athlete or somebody who's looking to invest with you guys? Well, on the athlete side, yes, like I said, there's different athletes uh, with different experience. At the end of the day, venture is all about experience, right? So if, if there's a willingness and a motivation to be active when it comes to investing, and that's something which is common across all our athletes, then no athlete has difficulty in understanding the concept of what we're investing in. So that's something that, you know, they understand. They understand what are the problems in the industry, as I said, they understand the potential solutions. 
they understand technology, they understand social media, they're young guys, especially the younger generation, they're grasp that. So that's something that actually we, we normally would have to explain more on a non-athlete, right? Who's mm -hmm. part of the industry. On an industry perspective, athletes are definitely ahead of the traditional investor we're working with. And then the, the sort of financial or, uh, or deal structuring mechanisms, this is something that they just naturally will understand. You know, what, mm -hmm. How do you price a company? What is the right way to, to execute a deal? This is something that at the end of the day, they're of course trusting us, but they will learn through through experience. But then again, at the end of the day, it's much more important to understand the industry and what tr drives the industry and, and how to make that happen, especially as Apex, the way we're positioned as an investor is exactly that, industry expert. So we normally have a co-investor or, 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 or a lead that is validating the product, the technology and the operation. So we're in a way recognizing again that we're still an emerging manager hedged in that sense. We're not coming in at this stage leading rounds. Mm -hmm. So it's not still, a, let's call it a priority. So athletes really real understand what the company they're investing in or what, what is the market or the fund, potential Apex fund is investing in, is trying to do. Uh, what is the need right now for new technologies within sports? This is something that they all grasp. On the, the, the non-athlete capital, they just understand that we access deals that most these other investors can't access through Apex and through our assets. So they understand, listen, we need to co-invest next with these guys because they have a unique selling point as an investor that uh, is um, that we need to leverage. Because even to this day, even this day that there is less liquidity out there, the best deals I still feel and I see that are over oversubscribed. So your or our challenge as an investment manager is really having a very clear USP or a, or a very clear value proposition that you know allows every founder to really want us on their cap table. And this is something that any institutional investor that has been investing for many years can see that we have within the sports industry. So they, you know, this is why they want to come on board and really leverage, you know, th this access. Mm. And I think that's a very interesting point to get into and to dive into, which is the the value that um, you can provide versus other uh, similar funds in the same space, right? Because you have that athlete network, you have the ability for the athlete to do invest, to get involved, and use their platforms to promote um, to promote new opportunities. So. Talk to us a little bit about how you do provide that value back into your portfolio companies and how involved your athletes do get in terms of promoting the uh, promoting those and, and helping to build them up. Yeah, so, you know, it will depend if it's really sort of a consumer deal or, or sort of a B2B uh, opportunity. Um, it's, 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 let's call it, it's always an apex network. It's either through the athletes that have invested directly in a company it's either the athletes that are part of our community or it's apex our network now you know on top of the athletes we have a very strong team advisory board and uh, and just network that we've built over these last two years that you know there's a few people in the world of sports that we really think we can't reach we've sort of invested in u.s companies that were coming into europe you know we've organized all their business development and the, the strategy around that and who to speak to and when to speak to and how to speak to them and the same thing for you europe us so that bridge is always something that we're very opportunistic about and you know try to maximize when we can uh but it's it, it, it's exactly on a business development standpoint so that's really where we we feel we contribute to founders is getting them in front of the right people in the right way so it's not just making introductions for the it's really mm -hmm who, when, and how, right? That's really our expertise. And that's why not only founders want us, but also lead investors. So lead investors, like I said, will have done the validation of the technology or of the operation for us. And then they'll tell us, 
this is a good product, this is a good team. And we'll tell them, okay, then there's a product market fit and this is exactly how to move into the market. That's when we come in. Mm -hmm. And where did the focus on tech come from? Was that from conversations in lockdown with Antonio? Was it something that you guys uh, had, a, had a very clear vision on from the start? How did that become the, the key focus? It's it's where we see uh, you know we, if you look at venture uh, an early stage and if you want some scalability you need to have a tech element that just so that naturally made us look and interested in sports tech and then timings helped us uh, the last five to ten years uh, especially the last five years you've seen a lot of private equity movement into sports so finally on a global level sports is, con is considered properly a, you know an investing asset class and a strong business not only in the U.S. And the moment you have, uh, you know, money-making business owners owning and operating sports properties, the first thing, the first thing that they need to do is look at technology and how to renew uh, or optimize the operation of these clubs. And in Europe, the, the, these these sports properties are ten, if if not twenty years behind. So that means that sports tech suddenly becomes a very interesting and opportunistic market, even this day. And, I, you know, we see this in the growth of every company that we are investing in how much people are targeting Europe, you know. So um, so timings pushed us as well into sports tech. So let's talk about uh, a specific investment. Uh, as viewers probably, or listeners rather, probably know, Spalk is one of the uh, members of Sportsloft. You guys invested in Spalk, helped to, helped to drive that growth curve forward. Walk us through what you saw there that really excited you and yeah. how you pitched it to the, uh, to the network to get them involved as well. Generally, the, the mission behind Spalk is a, a globalization of sport, right? So sport being... Uh, any sport being consumed anywhere and mm. at, uh, for everyone and in the easiest way. And the one barrier has always been, you know, language and communication, right? And this is exactly the solution or the problem they're trying to solve. And they had the best technology to do it. And they already had some very, very, very interesting use cases mm -hmm. when, uh, and, and strong investors when we looked at. So athletes understood what is still the problem they're solving. So they were very clear to to understand that. You know, we already saw the use cases they had uh, in the U.S., even informally, and so we already saw that, you know, this is working. Their tech is good. The feedback we were getting from their clients was definitely really good. Level of investors from, you know, already some athletes uh, were already invested. Uh, you know, the Greg Norman and his family office had led the previous round, you know, and they, they are credible investors that have been operating in sports for many years as investors. So, you know, it just really fits the criteria in, in many ways. We you know, of course, the founder, Ben, is a top guy that, you know, is, 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 has been doing a great job leading the firm and, and scaling the firm. Uh, and it was an easy sell, not an easy sell, an easy understanding for, 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 for any athlete. So, and, and it serves as well a part of the mission, which is we believe the future of sports has to be global, right? Uh, why is sports tech such a business? Because, you know, any sports property, as long as it, it produces nice content and, it, and it's appealing, it can be consumed anywhere and by everyone and as quickly as they want. And that's part of the mission of Apex as well. It's contributing to the future of sports and having it uh, democratized in, in such a way. And that's exactly, so there was also an alignment there. So, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, a variety of things, uh, made it clear and uh, and uh, and appealing for us as apex to invest 
And you mentioned Ben, the founder of Spock, who's, uh, who's, who's been on this podcast a couple of times and who is, is fantastic. Um, walk us through when you're looking at an investment. Is there a template that you're looking for from a founder? Is there, um, are there specific characteristics? Is everyone really different? I'm always fascinated in the, that, that dynamic of what is it about uh, a founder that makes investors particularly interested? Um, I think there is no rule there because, you know, um, it's about really the team. So um, some founders are are real, real leaders, right? And and normally the, these guys tend to be more commercial and more, you know, about getting the right team around them. And they're really leading the team. So there, once you validate he has the, person, the persona and the character, okay, you need to verify it's not a one-man show too much, right? So... Who's the team? Who's who's behind the technology? Who's behind the operation? And then there's the founders that come from the tech side. So then you need to make sure, okay, does he have a strong commercial guy next to him? Because this guy will still need to fundraise. Uh, so it's it's really about more on a team perspective. Of course, there has to be something unique about the founder. Either he's just a natural leader or he's so good at what he's doing that he's going to have that respect from his team. But, you know, there really needs to be a balance between technical and product uh, capabilities with mixed with operation and commercial side. Because at the end of the day, and in the world we live in, uh, fundraising capacity is fundamental because you can have a right product, but eventually run, you know, you're, you're not raising uh, forever. Um, and uh, and sometimes you need to go to market because market conditions change mm-hmm. and you can have a great product, you can have already some interesting numbers, but if you don't have, and we've seen that, if you don't have the right, the right commercial momentum and capacities, you might, you know, uh, die. Yeah. And uh, that's something that, uh, you know, you will need to make sure that uh, is either there on, an op- on, on a team standpoint or some of the investors are helping on that front strongly. And even the timing is really important, right? Getting, getting yeah. the right timing and being there in the right place. Speaking, speaking of which, you know, things, things are not necessarily the rosiest for the tech industry at the moment. There's, uh, there's been a lot of announcements of potential layoffs and things like that in some of the big, in, in some of the big tech companies. So pivoting to look at the macro scale a little bit, how, how is that affecting you guys? Is it affecting deal flow? Is it affecting the startups that you've invested in? How's, how's, that, how's that outlook? Yeah, for sure it's... Uh... It has its complications and there's definitely less liquidity and there's definitely more fear and you feel that. But we as investors, and luckily, we know the timings mean that we are just now really starting to invest heavily, have a good way to look at it, which means valuations have dropped. There was a bit too much power on the founder side. Mm-hmm. There was just too much liquidity, which meant valuations were completely uh, you know, unfair. You saw founders raising money out of pipe and out of sometimes really nothing just because there was pressure of deployment. So definitely this uh, shortage of liquidity and a bit more fear has given more power or reshifted, rebalanced the power a bit more on the investor side. And that's what we are. So that's, of course, the good way uh, uh, to look at it. But, you know, while we are now, of course, looking at you know raising our fund and, and, and fundraising for our fund, we do feel that there's more uh, fear when people look at venture because it's, of course, a risky asset class. It just means that the approach has to be different. Uh, founders now have to give up more equity. Founders have to raise thinking, you know, three, four years and not necessarily one and then I'm going to raise again because I've done the, the revenues I want and then I'm going to go into market and I'm going to raise at three, four times this valuation. So there needs to be a bit more prudency from founders, but also from investors. But I do feel we, as 
being on the money side, on the investor side, we are in a better position. Mm -hmm. uh, we just need to be extra diligent on how we do things. Mm -hmm. And how are you approaching the conversations with your portfolio companies in terms of helping them think through the next six months, the next 12 months, the next 24 months and the impact that um, you know, this potential downturn is, is, is going to have or the opportunities that are presented by it? How, how are you addressing that? We're in a good position, you know, uh, thankfully that most, well, all the companies we've invested are still, are in good position. Some are actually being exceptions in the market and have raised, uh, you know, good money recently at great valuations. Some have managed to really become sort of uh, profitable or at least, you know, uh, uh, break even. So they're living very common. So we haven't had the, 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 the need to go in a position you know, and sit down with founders and have strategic decision on how they should go about you know, managing that liquidity or going out uh, into the market again. But, but if that were the case, you know, they, I think people need to think, uh, you know, and just my advice would be think, think long-term, right? And, uh, and, and be realistic about what is the situation. And uh, it's better to have a smaller stake of something that will live and thrive than having a, a very big stake of something that will be worth zero. And, uh, and having and, and just accepting that reality also understanding that two years ago you may you may you probably rose uh, uh, you know raised some money at a valuation which wasn't fair anyways so so it, it's just having be ready uh, and, and, and not be afraid of doing even down rounds if that has to be and, and because it's just a success uh, sorry it's just a, a, a result of the macro macroeconomic that you know uh, situation that resulted for due to many years of living in something which also wasn't realistic yeah next to zero interest rates etc which is which is unprecedented. exactly so exactly how how are you guys looking at you know speaking specifically about technology and sports web 3 is is um one of the new frontiers and one of the kind of new outposts how are you guys approaching that and how are you looking at it especially considering that athletes and sports were one of the first proper adopters of of um nft programs and and web3 and massive dives into the metaverse etc um now that let's say the first bubble has kind of you know popped and and things are starting to settle down how do you view that space and where do you look to potentially put in investment and take the next steps yeah, I, as you said, not only athletes were the first uh, pioneers in many ways accepting and adopting NFTs, not only as consumers, but also as, you know, having them uh, uh, leverage their IP uh, in, in, in the Web3 world. But, but also the sports industry has been a very strong uh, use case and one of the few actual good use cases of Web3. So I'm, we're still very strong believers of how important Web3 is going to be for, for sports. I think the, the bubble really did make people look at Web3 different. And it's not just a question of numbers and hype, but it's a question of real utility, right? And I think this is something that you hear every day, but this is real. And I think in sports, it's one of the clear industries where that utility exists and that utility is, is, is easy to create as long as there's, a, you know, as there are fans and as long as uh, sports properties are thinking for you know how to monetize the future and the gen z and not necessarily their uh, typical uh, audience that they've been living off for many years so that's our view we still you know we we'll, we love web3 into sports not only through athletes ip but also just you know general sports properties ip and 
if you don't start getting a presence into Web3 with clear utilities and clear monetization channels within those utilities, you will not be able to address the, the future generations of, of sports consumers. You, you know, if you look at young, young kids these days, I mean, my, my younger brother, he's, he knows every football player in every team out there. And if I take him to a Benfica match live, he will not be able to, to watch more than 20 minutes fully concentrated. <laughs> and that's the reality. Yeah. And he knows and he loves football. Because so sports needs to be consumed in a much more gamified approach. Uh, they need to be interacting with whatever is happening. So if there's a fantasy around that game where there's life fantasy, there's some betting elements or not. It depends on the industry and the market and how you look at that. If there are some mm-hmm. some ways that they can be engaging also on a digital platform combined, with, that's fundamental. And that's how you will really optimize how you monetize these future generations. So, and uh, and that's the reality. And that's where the, the sports world is moving. And then I think Web3 will play a fundamental role in that. So... Um, so for us, it's it's definitely a, a key uh, a key uh, focus, but we need to make sure we do it correctly and, and prudently, and and having athletes on board that also puts us in a good position to find the right deals um, in, in the space. I was I was speaking to somebody. I'm, I'm fascinated about this because I was speaking to somebody about uh, about this not too long ago. Somebody who represents athletes, and uh, he was he he said that. A large part of his uh, 2022 was actually spent dissuading some of his athletes from doing NFT projects because the projects themselves had no utility. It was basically going to be seen as a money grab. Um, Now, not specifically about that, but how much do the athletes that you work with also come to you sort of with generic life and financial advice and stuff like that? Because you guys have a very, very close relationship to these guys. They obviously know your skill sets and your abilities. How much does your relationship go beyond investing either through an SPV in an occasional project or eventually raising the fund to actually supporting them as well? Is there any element of that? Yeah, na- naturally that, that happens uh, because you you, be, you reach a level of, of trust within a financial uh bubble let's call it that um you know, bubble bubble is always bad connotated when you associate it to financials but <laughs> now within the financial yeah. topic that they end up asking yeah. questions that they sometimes don't ask their wealth managers right because we, we our dynamics with us it's it's not on a service perspective it's on a partnership you know we're not asking them to do anything they're there because they want to while you know mm-hmm. wealth manager all fighting for for the place and it's all about the relationship management we are partners you know you're here because you want to because you want to create your brand as an investor and you want to learn and if you're because that's we don't need to work with a thousand we need to work with the right one so that puts you in a good place in a partnership eye to eye relationship where they start to really trust and open and, and ask you you know we avoid uh we avoid going into places where it's not what we do wealth management commercial deals career management but as friends we end up being or, or partners we can give our, our personal advice but we always like to make it very clear what we do and what we don't do, uh, just so there is no overlaps. Most athletes that we work with have a wealth manager, have a, uh, an agency, have a manager, a career manager, and you know, and these gatekeepers can sometimes block what we do. So we, our value proposition is very unique and very different, and we need to stick to that. But it's of course natural that you, you reach a level of trust that they might ask a few questions. And when they ask, we're here to answer as, as merely, you know, friends. 
I was going to ask about that and, you know, without throwing anybody under the bus, because I'm sure they're part of the wider partnership, but, you know, with wealth managers or people or, or people who are around athletes, um, you know, they're obviously always approached, they're always being asked to, to invest in stuff or lend their name to stuff and uh, things like that. How have you found that and um, how have you managed to navigate some of those tricky waters around the, the people who represent athletes? And I assume that having the athletes on board already has helped to make those connections directly to make it smoother um, without putting words in your mouth. It's exactly that. Our growth has been organic and athlete to athlete. So we, we are dealing and we deal with our structures and their structures is are fundamental and our relationship with our structures, whoever that may be, is fundamental because that's actually how you manage the day-to-day and the execution of the deals because not with the athletes, the athletes are there to decide and to want, but then, you know, getting the, the execution around the element is then with our structure. So you, we need to be in a great place with them. We generally start very well because it's always the athletes saying, listen, I want to meet Apex. No, and uh, I, I'm excited about what they're doing. I know other athletes that have introduced me to them who are happy. So, guys, I'm not telling you, I'm not making you in a position to decide. I'm just saying, you know, let's make it happen and, and you know, help me do it. So straight away, you're in a good place. Mm-hmm. And if if their structures are, you know, guys which are not too defensive, they will very easily understand that what we do it will only add value to what they're doing. And it will be only complementary. So generally speaking, we have um, we have a, a very good entry uh, to these structures because our it's done directly by their athletes. But like anything in life, it, it, you do have uh, those gatekeepers which uh, are always afraid of, of their position or don't exactly understand what you're doing or are always questioning your interests. And that is just generally what happens in life, particularly with with uh, with high profile athletes but uh but again but then again when when you grow athlete to athlete you end up not having a big problem so we generally avoid the agency brother cousin financial advisor route mm-hmm. um a couple of questions that we ask from everybody who comes on to the investor uh, the investor view for the sports law podcast so first of all what's your ambition for Apex Capital, what do you see in 10 years? So uh, I want to be not the biggest, but the best um, sports media entertainment investor out there and, and really the leader in this athlete entrepreneur movement and, and having, you know, have Apex contribute to the future athlete and how the future athlete will not only be just an athlete, but also a stakeholder and an owner um, of sports and, 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 and someone with a strong voice, um, in the future of sports. That's, uh, you know, uh, one, one strong ambition and leveraging that to just become a sports brand globally, right? Having people associate Apex to sports investing and to athlete entrepreneurs. I think you've done a pretty good job of getting there already. Certainly people in the industry have heard the name. Any dream athletes that you'd love to get on board? Chance to pitch them? Um, I think we're I mean, a good place where I think we have a chance to, to speak to every athlete. Um, and uh, and But I would say if there's one athlete which I would love to have on board is, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm Portuguese. And uh, and we know we know the structure very well, uh, but he's not part of us. But uh, that's just me as, uh, as someone that has followed and, and been a fan of, of what he's done, not only for football, but for Portugal. And, uh, and I'm Portuguese, so I, I cannot... Uh, I cannot say that I would be a, a personal 
uh, mission. <laughs> I, can't, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine that anybody would be uh, tremendously surprised about that. Um, we won't ask you to choose a, a favorite investment because it'd be like choosing between your favorite children, I assume. But was there one that you ever, that, that you passed on that you've regretted? No, not because, um, not because there's n there aren't companies that we didn't invest and in, I would have wanted to, but regret is something that we, we cannot think. Uh, and I cannot regret something that at the time I just couldn't do. And if we said no, it was because at the time it was, hmm. we couldn't, or we just didn't have the right motivations to do it. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't regret something that at the time I said no, because that was the conditions. But there are, of course, companies that looking back, you would have said, knowing what I know today, but, but that's always, but that's not a regret. That's just uh, uh, mm -hmm. a new, a new circumstance and a new reality. A new framework. And final question, favorite sports moment of the past week? So I guess Mitch, Mitch Evans uh, win in, uh, in Sao Paulo, for sure. He's a co-founder and, uh, and he was deserving that win for some time with some bad luck. And it was an amazing race, full of excitement. Antonio also could have gone for the win. He finished fourth, mm -hmm. but it was a super exciting win. And to have that be executed by a co-founder of your business and such a close friend is, is definitely uh, an amazing moment. And I know you got to spend some time with him in Brazil afterwards. So I uh, got to celebrate that win uh, quite well. Um, all that remains for me to say is a big, uh, big thank you. But before we get to that, we'll just quickly say, if you liked what you heard, please again, remember to subscribe to uh, the podcast and give us a like wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow us on social at Sportsloft HQ and make sure to head to our website, sportsloft.co and sign up for our newsletter. So with that said, a huge thank you to Antonio Cacarino for joining us on today's podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Yanni. And thank you, Sportsloft. Excellent. And with that, we hope to see you again soon in the Sports Loft. Goodbye. <laughs>